Well, good morning. Uh, again, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. If you don't know, we're in a series in the book of Acts uh, that we started three weeks ago. Uh, we've titled this series, Thy Kingdom Come, God's Mission to the World. Uh, and let me just catch you up where we are in this book uh, of Acts. Uh, Jesus Christ was crucified and then resurrected at the end of the Gospels. Uh, and then we see in Acts chapter 1 that this resurrected Jesus spends 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And, and then Jesus uh, tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, uh, who's going to come upon them and empower them and then send them out for God's mission into the world. And the 120 are gathered, uh, those 120 that are following Jesus, and they're with Jews from every nation for this festival called Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the people gathered and breathes life. He births his church. And those who are followers of Jesus begin to declare the mighty works of God in differing languages so that all who were gathered could hear and understand the gospel of Jesus. And now Peter, where we are this morning, Peter stands up to preach the first ever Christian sermon. That's where we are. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word in Acts chapter 2. This is a long portion of Scripture, um, so stick with me. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall, see, shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Isaiah 40 tells us that the uh, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Uh, let's pray. God, I ask that you would bless your word. We need you, Spirit, to breathe, to come, and to fill this place, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, to change us, to cut us to the heart. Would you do that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Now you can have a seat. Well, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. last weekend, and one thing about Martin Luther King Jr. was he was a great orator. Nobody would deny that. Uh, he could deliver a speech. Uh, his most famous that everybody knows, I have a dream. I mean, he was a gifted preacher. President Obama gave uh, his next to the last State of the Union address this past Tuesday. President Obama is a great orator, if you've ever listened to him. Highly educated man. Uh, but I was reading in the News and Observer on Wednesday morning, that most of the goals that President Obama stated on Tuesday that, uh, that he wanted to accomplish probably, probably would not happen. Most of the goals would never come across his desk for him to sign off on. So there would be little accomplished as a result of his speech on Tuesday. Peter stands up to deliver this speech. Peter is probably not very educated, and he preaches the first ever Christian sermon. And at the end of this sermon, we see the followers of Jesus grow from 120 to 3,120. 3,000 people were eternally changed as a result of Peter's speech. This was not just a moving speech by Peter. It accomplished something profound. 3,000 people cut to the heart. 3,000 people saved, converted, redeemed. 3,000 people came to know Jesus. However you may have heard this described before, Acts 2 verse 37 says they were cut to the heart. There was a deep incision. A knife was driven deep into their hearts and they were forever changed. When I lived in East Asia doing uh, mission work, we had an office that we rented just off the university where we were doing campus ministry uh, and we rented this office for prayer gatherings, for Bible studies, uh, for leadership meetings with the students who were in our ministry. Uh, and one thing about doing ministry in East Asia is that we had to use code language because the government did not want us being missionaries in the country, and so we used code language. So for God, we called God Dad. For the Bible, we said the book, uh, and on and on. And so when we rented the office, we decided to give code language to this office so that we could talk about it. Uh, in our everyday conversation. And we decided to call the office the OR. The OR, the operating room. Because this is the place that we were going to pray and read God's word 
and meet and talk about this ministry, a place where we would ask the Holy Spirit to come in a powerful way to do heart surgery, to cut to the heart, to drive the knife of the gospel deep into people's hearts. And we live, as Timothy prayed earlier, or said earlier, in one of the, probably the freest country in the world. We gather on Sunday mornings out in the open. We live in a city with over hundreds of churches. Many of you have grown up hearing about Jesus and about what Jesus has done. But let me tell you that there is a huge difference between knowing about Jesus, hearing about Jesus, attending a church service, even coming to a city group, versus being cut to the heart by Jesus. Many can do Christian activities. We can know all about it, but never truly know him. Now, a lot of preachers get all geeked up. They get jacked up uh, when they see uh, Peter's sermon having this type of impact because every preacher wants this to happen, right? Every preacher wants 3,000 people to be cut. Now, let me give you a little bit of insight into the neurosis of, of preachers. It's easy for a preacher to think that it is their oratory ability, their wise and persuasive words that's going to cut people to the heart. It is easy. Peter was probably not very eloquent in his delivery, not very educated, and his sermon was powerful. 3,000 saved. And this encourages preachers like me because the sharpness of the knife is not tied to me. The gospel story of Jesus and the good news of Jesus is what changes people. The knife of the gospel is sharp, and it's ready to make incision and my question for you this morning is, have you and are you being cut to the heart by Jesus? I want us to look at what Peter says in this long sermon and pray that God would do just that. For some of you this morning, it may be the first time you've ever been cut to the heart. For all the rest of you who've been cut for the first time, I pray you will be cut to the heart yet again by Jesus. So let's look at three things this morning. The first thing is that there is an invitation that is offered in this sermon. Peter stands up and he says, I know you might think that these people here at Pentecost who are speaking other languages are drunk. <laughs> it's 9 a.m., Peter says. It's not drunk. They're not drunk. But he doesn't spend much time explaining on what's not happening, but rather he goes into what is happening. And he quotes the prophet Joel in verses 17 to 21. He then quotes two psalms, if you picked up on that, in verses 25 to 28, and then in verses 34 to 35. The first thing Peter does is go straight to the Old Testament Scriptures, which these Jews gathered would have known. The invitation to know Jesus that Peter offers is rational and it's biblical. At no point in this sermon does Peter say, turn off your mind and just let the Holy Spirit move. Peter addresses their mind by, by engaging with their context and by opening up the Old Testament Scriptures. Peter does not preach what their scratching ears want to hear. He speaks clearly and rationally about the Bible. He proves Jesus from the Scriptures. Now, when I was at UNC uh, for five years doing campus ministry, there was a professor named Bart Ehrman who would always challenge college students. When they would take his religion courses, and he was a great teacher, but every time that they would take his course, he would challenge them to think. Have you ever thought about your faith? Have you ever questioned your faith? And what he was trying to do was debunk 
their faith, right? Trying to get them to doubt and begin to pull away from faith in Jesus. But as a campus minister there, I would often say, I agree. I agree with Dr. Ehrman. Think about it. Question it. Investigate Jesus. Because I know, I knew then, I still know now, that if people do that, if they seek to understand with their minds from the Bible, that the truth of God will cut their heart. So another thing about this invitation, it's not just rational and biblical, it's centered upon Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophecy of Joel. He is the one who's the fulfillment of the two Psalms of David. Uh, And Peter is preaching all about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. I'm not sure if you've ever read the Bible and thought, man, I wish I could have been there. I don't know if you've ever done that. There are often times when I read, I'm like, man, it would have been awesome to have been there when that happened. One of those places for me is Luke chapter 24, uh, the road to Emmaus. These two men are walking down the road, and they're in discussion over what just happened in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And, And then all of a sudden, this resurrected Jesus appears as they're walking down the road, and they don't recognize the risen Jesus. And Luke 24, verse 7 says that Jesus tells them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the whole Old Testament, that he interpreted them in all the scriptures, everything concerning himself. I always think, man, how amazing would it have been to hear Jesus open up the whole Old Testament and explain how everything was about how Genesis and Leviticus and Nehemiah and Malachi, everything was about Christ. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. There is no good news and there is no salvation apart from Christ. So we must preach Jesus and teach Jesus. I like to envision the message of the gospel, uh, the invitation that Jesus offers as a rocket that must be launched over and over and over It is the power to change people's lives. But it is easy for churches to get sidetracked and to allow this rocket all of a sudden to tangent and to go off course and to start focusing on things like culture or education or politics, which are all good things and are all things that the church should address and should talk about, but always as a point to ultimately talk about the main and central thing the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. These two men on the road to Emmaus, uh, after Jesus explained how everything was about him, they realized who Jesus was. Listen Listen to what they said. They said, did not our hearts burn within us? In other words, we were cut to the heart. We were cut. If you're here this morning and you think all religions are good, that Jesus is one among many, I wonder if you've been cut. Because if you've been cut to the heart, you will see that the truth is Jesus. And He is the only hope and the only way unto salvation. Now before some of you uh, who are processing Christianity are here this morning, you're questioning Christianity, let me just tell you again, I hope you hear over and over, we are glad you are here. We hope you can enter into this place wherever you are in the process of trying to figure out Christianity. We hope you feel welcome. 
So before you stand up and walk out right now as I talk about this, because maybe you're mumbling to yourself, I knew it, this exclusivity of Jesus, Jesus being the one way, that's what bothers me about Christianity. That's my problem with Christianity. Let me just say that everyone is exclusive in some sense. Everyone is exclusive. Everyone is exclusive in their view of salvation. If you think a good person is ultimately saved, what about those who aren't very good? If you think a person who tries to love people well are ultimately saved, what about when I and you don't love very well? The invitation to know Jesus that Peter offers is not just rational and biblical. It's not just Christ-centered. It was incredibly inclusive. You picked up on Joel, uh, the, the prophecy of Joel. Uh, in, in this time, uh, religion was incredibly divisive. Uh, in, in the first century uh, for Jews, it, religion was divided by race and culture. And then now along comes Christianity and says, Jew-Gentile, young-old, male-female, slave or free, all are invited to come into relationship with Jesus was scandalous for Jesus to invite all. That's what, that's, that's what Joel says. All who call upon his name will be saved. And Jesus now offers that invitation through what he has done to anyone. Black, white, rich, poor, the owner of a business, the unemployed, the person who's new to the church or the person who's been in church their whole life. This invitation is offered and it's offered to you. The second thing we see about what Peter preaches in a sermon that cuts to the heart is that conviction is necessary. Conviction is necessary. The first thing I mean when I say conviction is guilt. To convict someone is to declare someone that they are guilty of an offense, right? That's what, that's what Peter does in verses 22 to 23. Uh, listen to verses 22 to 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men. These men who were gathered in Jerusalem, they were not present at the crucifixion. They had just arrived in Jerusalem. How in the world did they crucify Christ? How did they kill him? Peter is saying, you are guilty of the execution of Jesus because it was your sin that led him there. It was your sin that he died for. And you will never be cut to the heart if you do not understand and believe that it was my sin that led Jesus to the cross. Jesus was crucified because of your greed, because of your lust, because of your anger, because of your pride, because of your sin, because of my sin. You killed him. We killed him. Guilt is my mom coming into my house and finding me and my brother with all the cookies eaten and asking me and my brother who did it. And I finally, with bowing head, confess, I did it. I did it. Guilt is looking at Jesus mocked, beaten, bruised, bloody, crucified, 
and you scream or you mourn or you can barely whisper, I did it. I did that. But catch what Peter does in, verses 20, in verse 23. He says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was their sin, it was our sin that crucified Jesus, but God was in control all along. It was necessary that Jesus be crucified. The Father and the Son knew it would happen all along. God would use this evil act, the execution of the innocent, spotless Son of God for the salvation of all who would believe. We sang earlier how deep the Father's love for us. And in there it says, it was my sin that held him there. And that is true in one sense, right? But in another sense, I think we should sing sometimes in that song, it was his love. It was his plan all along that held him there. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, which was an evil act, right? an evil act. But listen to what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50. He says, what you intended for evil, God used it for my good. Hear me in this. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of your sin. But our God is so kind that he even uses our sin to bring us to our need of him. He's not the author of your addiction. He's not the author of your lust. He's not the author of your greed or your pride. But if you allow him, he will use it. And he will convict you and ultimately lead you to your need of his love and grace, which is only found in the cross of Christ. We need the cross. We need a Savior, someone who will take our guilt and our punishment. Until you feel your guilt, you will never feel your need for him. I had a student at UNC um, in my second year. She was one of my key leaders in the ministry. Uh, and she came to me one night with, a ton of guilt. She was just overwhelmed by her guilt. And she started to share with me about why she felt so guilty. And she said she felt this guilt because the night before she had spent the night with a guy. And she was just overwhelmed uh, with her guilt. And, and I told her in that time, it's good that you feel guilt. It's good that you know that you have gone against God. You not only broke God's rule, but you broke his heart. <laughs> It's not heart, God's heart for you. you. You went against his heart and his love for you. But then I told her, you have a hard time believing, and I would venture to say many of you do too, and I, and I do, that while you were in that bed with that guy, God was there. God was there, and he wasn't delighting in your sin. He wasn't rejoicing over your sin. But he was there, and he was offering himself to you even in that moment. And what you need to do now in your guilt is turn and trust that he loves you, and know that Jesus died for last night. She was letting her guilt cripple her so that she couldn't turn and receive the love and the grace that's offered. And some of you this morning might find yourself in that same place. So much guilt, and you're not able to turn and receive the grace and forgiveness in Christ. Jesus wants you to feel that, but he wants more than anything for you to turn and experience his love and mercy to you. And until you have conviction of your sin, you'll never feel your need for him. You have to be able to say that Jesus died because of me, but he also died for me.
And then you can turn and do, which my third point is to, uh, this morning that Peter shows us in his sermon about being cut to the heart. When, you, when you're guilty and you're convicted, you turn and you experience your need being met in Jesus, surrender is the only response. There's an, an invitation, conviction's necessary, but lastly, surrender is the only response when we're cut to the heart. Peter continues to preach, and he quotes David in, verse, uh, in, in Psalm 16 and Acts 2, verses 25 to 28. He says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And then verse 29... <laughs> He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb with us to this day. He's dead. He's buried. <laughs> I kind of think that would be funny for Peter to say that. And, and then he goes on and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension to power at the right hand of God. And he's making the point Jesus is the only one who cannot be held by the grave. He's the only one who's now enthroned as king over all. David is dead and buried. All leaders that we might ever follow and look to are dead and buried. Jesus is the only one risen from the dead and now ruling over everything. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, let all of Israel know that he is both Lord and Christ. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus declares that he is Lord and that he is king. The resurrection and the ascension is the coronation of King Jesus. Now, we talked about this at our city group a couple weeks ago. We don't live in a country with kings, do we? So sometimes it's hard for us to envision what it would be to live with a king. But when I lived in East Asia, we would have a month during the middle of the year where we would travel to Thailand. And in Thailand, we would go every time to Bangkok. And every time we were in Bangkok, we would go to this movie theater that showed English movies because where we were living, we couldn't do that. And they had these plush, red, lazy boy chairs where you could just throw your feet up, watch a movie in English. And, uh, and the first time we went to this movie theater, uh, it's before the movie came on, we were all sitting in our lazy boys ready to relax and watch a movie. Picture of the king in Thailand pops up. And everybody in the movie theater stands up, salutes, and the national song is played. A king demands submission. A king commands surrender, whether you feel like it or not. A king, by his position, is owed surrender. How much more? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. His resurrection and his ascension declare it and prove it. And the thing about knowing if you've been cut to the heart or not, if you've encountered Jesus, is if you are willing to cry out, Uncle. Uncle, I surrender. Your whole life, right? Not parts, but everything. I was involved with a ministry that used to talk about being a carnal Christian. If you've ever heard that terminology. A carnal Christian is someone uh, who has Jesus in their life, but Jesus is not sitting on the throne of their heart, right? That was... There was a, a picture that would often be drawn. Uh, Jesus was not sitting and ruling. And I always had a hard time with this. Uh, because if you say you're a Christian, that you've received Jesus, but you're waiting for Him to be the Lord, if you're waiting for Him to rule over everything in your life, do you really know Jesus? Do you really know Him? Because He is Lord and King, whether we realize it or not. And he demands complete surrender. He's the boss. He has authority. 
So you cannot say that you know Jesus. And you hear him say, you must stay married. But you say, I will if my spouse will change. You hear Jesus say, don't get angry. And you say, well, I will if only my friend wouldn't do that. Or if only my spouse wouldn't do that. You cannot hear Jesus say, tithe and give generously. And you say, well, I will if and when I want to. If there is an if, Jesus is not Lord and King of your life. You are. Jesus is Lord, commanding complete surrender. He's also the one who took our punishment and our sin upon himself. The one who loves us so deeply and so perfectly that he would go to the cross. And when we don't surrender to King Jesus, we treat his great love displayed on the cross like dirt. That's what we're doing. We're treating it like dirt. Rachel had some uh, girls over on Thursday night. Uh, I think they were just hanging out. And uh, they were telling stories about their relationship uh, with their mom, uh, with their differing mothers. And one girl, who we'll call Abby, uh, was there. And uh, and she was telling about a time where she was very unappreciative uh, with her mother. Uh, And she was dying. This Abby is probably in her 30s now. But she was saying when she was in high school, she was dying for this $400 electric blue prom dress covered in rhinestones. <laughs> and, uh, and they were kind of laughing about that. And, uh, and the, gr- the girl presented it to her mom. Mom, I really want this dress for prom. And her mom said, absolutely not. That's way too expensive. We're not spending that for, for your prom. And Abby got mad. She stormed off. And two nights before the prom, her mom surprised her with the dress. She unpacked it, she pulled it out, she looked at it. It was the dress that she had always wanted. And then she threw it on the ground and said, it's too late, Mom, and walked out. (laughs) And they all started laughing, like, how did y'all would never do that to my mom? She said, I did that. And then she went on to say, several years later, that Abby's mom was getting ready to undergo surgery for cancer. And right before she was about to go in for anesthesia, Abby cried out, Mom, I'm so sorry about the prom dress. I'm so sorry that I totally rejected you and I did not see the value of what you did for me. I was so ungrateful. (laughs) When we are unwilling to surrender and trust the great love of Christ towards us, we treat the greatest gift imaginable, the cross of Jesus, like dirt. But if we see its value, we're cut to the heart. And we will, like the crowd, cry out, what shall we do? What shall we do? And the Lord says, repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn away from your way of doing life. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from you being in control. And turn to the one who is over everything. The one who loves you perfectly. And then be baptized. Baptism is an identification with Jesus. It was and it is a naming ceremony. You take on the name of Jesus. You're now His. And so repentance is for everyone here this morning. Baptism. If you've never been baptized, it's for you as well. But repentance is for all of us. And for some of you, as I said at the beginning, maybe you've never been cut to the heart. And I don't know if I've ever done this in a sermon. We've only been going for about a year. Uh, but I've always kind of been a little shy of kind of the altar call because of some things. But 
Uh, I'm not about to do an altar call, but uh, I will say that if you're here this morning and you are experiencing being cut to the heart for the first time, we want to talk to you. We want nothing more than for you to know Jesus, nothing more than for you to be baptized into his name. For all of us here this morning, repentance and surrender is continual. It is over and over and over for every Christian. Repentance and surrender are the sure signs that you've been cut to the heart. So if you leave here on Sunday mornings and you're like, man, Sky sang that, Autumn sang that, that was a good lesson, there are a couple good points in that, and, and then you leave here, hey, good, good to see you, we'll see you next Sunday. That is not the point of what's happening this morning. That is not the point. The goal of every Sunday morning is that the Lord Jesus and the gospel story of redemption would continually cut us to the heart and lead all of us out here in repentance and surrender. He's the Lord. He's the resurrected King who loved you so much He would die for you. He offers this invitation today. Will you receive it? Are you convicted? Will you surrender? Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, make the incision. Open our hearts for the first time and yet again and afresh this morning that we would see Jesus. That we would say, we did that. We did the cross. That was for us that he died. How much, can, how much more should we follow? So God, would we leave here surrendering and trusting that you are good and you're loving and kind and gracious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.